Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. We continue to take our inspiration from the topics discussed in the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. This week's selection is Joss Whedon John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men run, which turned out to be a little bit difficult to draw inspiration from. Not because there's not a lot in here, but because we've already discussed Cyclops Optic Blasts, Mutation in general, mass-changing heroes, Wolverine's healing factor, artificial intelligence, phasing characters. We've hit a lot of the content that's shown up in this particular run already. One of the things that we haven't discussed yet is genetic engineering. It shows up in this story when we learn that Emma Frost's second mutation was not natural and was in fact given to her, as well as in the cure for mutant conditions, which is part of a plot line that also inspired a major plot point in X-Men 3, The Last Stand. So what is genetic engineering? Well, we've been doing it for centuries through breeding dogs, selecting specific cuttings to use when growing more plants, and other less efficient and time-consuming techniques, where doing the genetic engineering requires generations and generations and generations of the engineered organisms before we start to see major results. The modern definition of genetic engineering is just the most efficient version where we explicitly manipulate the genes themselves and manually alter the makeup of the cell's nucleus. Now, this is synonymous with GMOs, or genetically modified organisms. So we need to look at what GMOs are and what that really means from a biological perspective. So GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are usually designed to give positive attributes to those organisms that they don't naturally have. For example, Norman Barlog developed high-yield crops, winning the Nobel Peace Prize, and being credited with saving a billion lives from starvation in underdeveloped countries. These crops were shorter, produced more wheat, grew in smaller biological footprints, and were more resistant to disease, which are all attributes that made it significantly easier to feed large populations in resource-strapped countries. The Hawaiian papayas were threatened with extinction by a ring spot virus, but genetically modified papayas have an immune response to the virus that saved the crops and a significant portion of the Hawaiian economy. And this isn't limited to food we eat. Starting in the late 60s and early 70s, there were actually developments that genetically modified E. coli bacteria, which have very simple structures so that they could produce human proteins and human compounds, most notably insulin. So even though these genetically modified E. coli bacteria are used to treat a number of diseases and have saved thousands if not millions of lives over the years, Without GMO E. coli specifically, the human species would be incapable of producing enough insulin to support the diabetic population that we have. So without GMOs, being a diabetic would essentially be a death sentence. So does this mean all GMO foods are safe to eat? Well, the ones that are approved for humans, yes. Our digestive system breaks food down into its component proteins. If we implant DNA from cows into wheat, then we can grow beef bread that our bodies cannot distinguish from roast beef sandwiches. When we break it down into proteins, it's just those proteins. It doesn't matter which piece of food they came from. So if we can digest it from its source, we can digest it from any organism that it's implanted in, so long as we can eat that organism as well. So that doesn't mean that we'd eliminate poisons if there are poisons in the first place. If we graft this cow DNA or these cow genes into, say, a puffer fish, it could still be poisonous to us. There have been massive studies done by entities like the entire European Union that have shown no impact, positive or negative, of genetically modified foods on the people who eat them. 
By massive, I mean they've taken thousands of active participants in some studies where they've looked at thousands of people who regularly eat GMOs, thousands who do not, and see no significant difference in the rise of certain health conditions or longevity and life cycles. They have done other studies looking essentially at millions, if not billions of people, the entire European population, comparing the consumption of genetically modified organisms in local markets with the diseases and the health risks that we see in those same local regions with no correlation whatsoever. So they cannot find any evidence of any positive or negative health risk or health issues associated with consumption of GMOs. But that's with people. And that's the rub because the rules and regulations we have right now are focused on human consumption of these foods. If a bee would get sick from eating a cow, then they'll get just as sick from eating from a plant that has cow DNA implanted in it. So the controls on GMOs do need to be more strict, and they need to focus specifically on where and how they're grown so that these GMO organisms don't get unleashed into the wild before we understand what impact they will have on all of the species in the area. So a lot of people say, well, if they're really that safe, then why do GMOs companies resist labeling? Well, it's because their products have an unwarranted negative reputation. Now, I'm not saying these companies are totally idealistic. Monsanto has done some incredibly nasty things, but that's because Monsanto has chosen to do some incredibly nasty things. It's not because they produce GMOs, it's because it's run by unethical people. But again, if you think about all the GMO companies out there, well, think about it in terms of yourself and your workplace. If there's a nasty and false rumor going around about you in your workplace, wouldn't you at least try to stop people from saying that you are the subject of that rumor if you can't stop them from spreading it? That's, I think, the main resistance to GMOs is they would lose markets and lose consumers for reasons that are unwarranted and unsupportable in most cases. So bring it back to comic books. In this arc, we learn that adult Emma Frost, who had already developed her telepathy, was given a second mutation, and that's becoming her diamond form. We also have the mutant cure where aliens from the break world can inject humans with this cure and their mutant abilities disappear virtually instantaneously. So what we see is that the effects in the comics are immediate or very rapid and affect the entire body of the original organism on the spot. So this is where the problems come in. In reality, you actually do have to have something that affects the entire organism almost simultaneously. If you start changing just a small group of cells without changing the entire body to match, then your body would treat those cells as cancer or foreign objects because they don't match the rest of your body. So you'd get an immune response that's similar to the issues you have with blood types that are mismatched doing the blood transfusions. One of the reasons cancer is so dangerous is because it's resistant to a lot of the normal forms of attack by the immune system. It can grow faster than it can be stopped. We'd also have issues with the cells that have dramatic changes not matching the tissues next to them. So if the mutation involves growing extra blood vessels and you're suddenly cured, well, those blood vessels are going to be pinched off or they're going to become vestigial. If you're dealing with something that has specific appendages, such as, say, angel's wings or the beast's totally different facial structure and his loss of fingers on his hands and all that fur, if the cure takes effect immediately, what happens to that mass? Does the fur just fall off? Do the wings fall off? Is the tissue reabsorbed? It is a change so dramatic and so rapid, it would probably kill you one way or the other. We can only assume that it works because it is based on break real technology. Even though they've coached humans into producing it themselves, I think it's going to have to be a very high scale, 
essentially nanotechnology. So this cure can't be just a chemical compound they're injecting you with. It's got to be nanobots that rapidly spread throughout the entire body and then make a coordinated change, mapping out before and after, determining what changes need to be involved, and then making those changes while adjusting the body chemistry and physiology sort of live and on the fly to make sure that the transfer is successful. In real life, we rarely do genetic modifications, if at all, with an existing organism, aside from single-cell bacteria or something that simple where we don't have that immune response. For the most part, we do our genetic modifications when we are down to single-cell contributions or single-cell entities, and then use those genetic modifications in the offspring that they produce. So we start with one cell and it grows into a new cell, or we start with the reproductive organs and change it so that the offspring reflect those changes. That way the body develops with one genetic code for all cells from start to finish. And that is really the only effective way to do genetic engineering. So in any event, that is the podcast for this month. Join us again next month when we, again, will be taking our inspiration from the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels countdown. Feel free to share links with the show with friends or rate the show on iTunes and on Stitcher along with any other shows that you regularly listen to. Feedback and suggestions for topics after this unofficial 75 Greatest run is finished can always be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And finally, thank you for listening.